Hey everyone, I'm Dominique. And I'm Heidi. Welcome to More Gretz. We're glad you decided to waste some time with us. We want to say thanks to Bridget Blair for the shout out on our Instagram page and to Tracy for sharing our podcast with her network of colleagues. We appreciate that. Oh, you're not supposed to say appreciate anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. And neither well, are you. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell everyone why? <laughs> so my daughter, who um, likes the podcast, but she is really annoyed at the way we say appreciate. I don't get it. I don't either. I said, well, would it be better if we said appreciate? I don't know. She goes, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It just annoys me when you guys say it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, okay. Well, you know what? Speaking of brats. <laughs> We'll get that. We'll get to that later in the funeral home story. Yes, we will. And, uh, well, Frankie, we do appreciate you. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> well, before we start, we want to remind you we are talking about death. If you are easily offended by rude humor and foul language or are particularly sensitive to discussions about death, you may want to pass on this podcast. We are wildly inappropriate at times, but that comes directly from growing up in a funeral home. The way we insulate ourselves is by humor, and for us, it's a lot better to laugh, even when you feel like crying. Yeah, I think maybe we should just put one little extra disclaimer in here. I mean, you say it every time that, you know, we're wildly inappropriate. Yes. We're just going to say to anyone out there that's extra sensitive, we want you to know we love all people. All people. All races, all religions, all sexualities. We don't care. We love the individual. So yes. we don't put people in categories like no. that at all. No. However... <laughs> When when the opportunity presents itself, we will make fun at anyone and everyone. That's that's right. And we think it's funny. Doesn't we, mean we don't like certain people or yeah. anything like that. It's right. just we just find humor in a lot of right. things. And so don't just try not to be sensitive. I mean, yeah, it's we think, not. We think you'll. In, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a matter of time. We're gonna make fun of everyone. Yes, everyone. Absolutely. Oh, all right. Well, Heidi, we're both mothers. Yes, we are. And would you say that your children are your pride and joy? Absolutely. And would you further say that you would do anything to protect them and keep them safe, even now that they're adults? Of course I would. I mean, I think most women that are mothers have a little bit of that mama bear. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that goes away. No. I, that's how it is for most mothers. It's our instinct to love and care for our children. And that doesn't stop when they're grown. But sometimes even mothers go bad and pure evil takes over. We want to warn you guys that this is going to be a really rough one. In this episode, our death story talks about mothers who did the unthinkable and killed their children. And our funeral home story tells of a loving mother who used an interesting tactic to bring her children back in line. Obviously, this episode deals with child victims, so if that makes you uncomfortable, please sit this one out. That said, welcome to episode 18. Your One Bad Mother. First of all, we need to understand the act of filicide, which is the killing of one's children. And we know fathers murder their children, children as well. But in this episode, we will be talking about cases that were perpetrated by the mother. Well, we have to because otherwise the title wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> filicide is divided into five categories. Altruistic filicide is where a mother kills her child out of love, not out of hate or anger. A mother may want to end her own life, but doesn't want to leave her child motherless or in a world they see as cruel. 
or they may want to save their children from inevitable evil and damnation. This was the case with Andrea Yates, the Texas mother who drowned her five children in a bathtub to ensure they would go to heaven. Child maltreatment filicide is when child abuse results in death. This is the only one of the five categories where the parent does not intend to kill their child. Sadly, this happens all too often. Acutely psychotic filicide happens when there is no motive for the killing. If the parent is high on drugs, is having a medical episode, or is simply suffering from severe mental illness, the killing would fall into this category. Such was the case when an epileptic mother, left in a state of confusion after a seizure, mistakenly put her baby on the fire and the kettle in the crib. Spouse revenge filicide is, you guessed it, one parent killing a child to get back at their partner. Listen to this. A woman plans a trip with her girlfriends, and between the time the trip is booked and the Caribbean cruise starts, she gets engaged. While she's on the cruise, her fiancé's dad dies. He wants her to cut her trip short and come comfort him in his grief. Well, she doesn't. Fast forward to after they get married and have a baby. The man killed his seven-month-old son to get back at his wife for not coming home from vacation, back when they weren't even married. So he had planned it for months. So he just wanted her to suffer like he'd suffered? I can tell you what would happen to my spouse if he did this. Yeah, I am right there with you, sister. So these four types of filicide are no doubt horrible. In the cases of death by abuse or revenge, the courts will take care of those if the other parent doesn't. When the crime has roots in mental illness, it is maybe easier to sympathize with the murderer. But we're going to focus on the fifth category, and those are the pieces of shit, scum of the earth people who commit what is known as unwanted child filicide. This is where a parent kills their child because they are interfering with the parent's lifestyle. Unfortunately, there is no shortage of cases such as these. Most of us have heard of Susan Smith, the South Carolina woman who strapped her two boys into their car seats, then let her car plunge down a boat ramp and into a lake. And Diane Downs, the Oregon woman who shot her three children on a remote forest road. Both women initially tried to blame other people for their crime. As it turns out, they each thought their kids were in the way of a relationship that they wanted to have with a man. But even before those horrible mothers committed atrocities against their innocent babies, another couple carried out this dastardly deed. In 1961, the lives of two children, a brother and sister, six years old and four years old respectively, were snuffed out at the hands of Janice Freeman and Gertrude Jackson. Janice Freeman had a horrible childhood. She lost her biological father when she was very young. Then her mother married a real winner. Janice's stepfather sexually abused her beginning when she was only four years old and her mother did nothing to stop it, which happens a lot um, in households where this kind of abuse is going on, unfortunately. Janice probably never felt like she fit in because she knew from a very young age that she was a lesbian. Um, Okay, Didi, do you know how she knew? No, how'd she know? Well, her mom took her to the country fair and she won the pie eating contest. <laughs> well, back in the 50s and 60s, homosexuality wasn't really talked about or accepted, especially in rural central Oregon where she lived. She always wore masculine clothing, kept her hair cut short, and even bound her breasts to make her chest appear flat. 
Janice acted out and became a disciplinary problem. In fact, when she was 13 or 14, she stole a gun and a car, and that landed her in reform school. Reform school is basically jail for teenagers. Did you ever know someone that went to reform school? Yeah. They're our neighbor down the street from um, when we lived in the Red House before we moved into the funeral home. Oh my, that was so long ago. How do you even remember that? Well, I went to play with the sister one time, and her older brother, who is the one that went to reform school, locked me in the house, wouldn't let me go home. I was terrified. And you don't forget shit like that. Whoa, yeah. Well, anyway, Janice did her time, and by the time she got out, she was in her later teens. She moved to Eugene, Oregon, where she found waitressing jobs and also worked as a babysitter. The other villain in this story is Gertrude Jackson. Gertrude was married and had a child, but she left her family behind and began a relationship with another man with whom she had two more children. These children will become the victims and their names are Larry and Martha. It's a good thing she left her other son with her, with his father because otherwise he probably would have been a victim too. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, Gertrude was a very meek and a submissive woman and she also suffered from mental illness, which was undiagnosed at the time. She had moved to Eugene and was a single woman now and in need of a babysitter. Someone introduced her to Janice Freeman and Janice started looking after Larry and Martha. Despite their age difference, Janice was 19 and Gertrude was 33. And the fact that Gertrude had always had sexual relationships with men, the two became lovers. It had been reported that during the first week the two knew each other, Gertrude was under the impression that Janice was a young man. But even when Gertrude found out this wasn't the case, she still entered into a sexual relationship with Janice. How would you not know? I mean, I, I understand that nowadays it might be a little harder to tell, but back in the 50s and 60s, how would you, would, would she hire something? <laughs> I don't know, but hey, what does a high lesbian get? What? The carpet munchies. But I'm bum. Well, by all accounts, Janice was the dominant partner. In fact, it seemed like she may have even bullied Gertrude. The older woman once commented, whatever she said, that was it. Janice wasn't the greatest babysitter. She kept the kids outside and out of sight most of the time, and her resentment for Larry and Martha festered. Janice believed the children were standing in the way of the relationship she wished to have with Gertrude. Somehow, she convinced Gertrude the kids had got to be getting rid of, and unbelievably, Gertrude went along with this notion. The women thought of multiple ways to dispose of Larry and Martha. One plan was to leave them in the caves near the Oregon and California border. Another was to light them on fire to make them harder to identify. Then, Janice realized she knew a perfect spot to discard of the little boy and girl. There, in her childhood playground where she would spend her days fishing, lay the Crooked River Canyon, a 360-foot fissure in the earth. The whole thing is making me nauseous. Yeah, it's so sad. Well, we've crossed the Crooked River Canyon Bridge a lot of times. I remember Dad telling us this when we were little. This case is utterly disgusting. And here's where it gets worse, so fair warning. In early May, Janice contacted her family in Central Oregon to let them know she would be coming for a visit. Early on May 11, 1961, Janice and Gertrude loaded Larry and Martha into Gertrude's car and headed for the high desert of Central Oregon. There are conflicting accounts of what happened next, but this is what is generally accepted. As the sun started to fill the gorge, Janice and Gertrude pulled up to the high bridge crossing the Crooked River Canyon. 
the evil bitches walked on the bridge, taking in the view, and shared some kisses. They returned to the car where Larry and Martha were sleeping in the back seat. One or both of those fucking hags strangled Larry, then removed his clothes and beat him over the head with a tire iron. They used the tire iron to sodomize the boy to make it look like he'd been sexually assaulted, then tossed his little body over the railing of the bridge. Martha was next, and this is absolutely horrific. The little girl was not strangled or beaten. She was sexually assaulted with the tire iron and thrown off the bridge while she was still alive. In a furious attempt for survival, Martha reached out for her mother, succeeded in, succeeding in grabbing a fistful of hair, which remained clutched in her tiny hand when she hit the rocky canyon floor. Janice and Gertrude then went to Janice's brother's house, where the couple cleaned the car, rested, and later went fishing upriver from where the murdered children lay. Janice explained to her family members that Gertrude was a little blue because she had to leave her children in foster care. After spending the night, the women started their journey to California, but asked for a route that wouldn't take them across the Crooked River Bridge. Later that afternoon of May 12th, three Forest Service employees spotted the bodies of Larry and Martha at the bottom of the canyon. The workers called authorities and a rescue team scaled the cliffs to retrieve the children. Autopsies revealed that the children's injuries were not from a sexual assault by an adult male, as Janice and Gertrude intended them to appear, but by another object trying to disguise the attack as such. Authorities worked to find the identity of the children, but no one in the area had reported their children missing, and it was a mystery as to who the kids were. Meanwhile, Janice and Gertrude had rented a small apartment in Oakland, California. The news of the tragedy had hit the papers, and Janice bought one to read up on the story. Back in Oregon, one of Janice's family members started putting the pieces together. The early morning visit, the explanation for Gertrude's depressed demeanor, the cleaning of the car, the requested route out of state that would not take the women over the bridge, the family member contacted authorities, and it wasn't long before the vile couple was tracked down, arrested, and brought back to Oregon. In the end, Gertrude Jackson was sentenced to life in prison, and Janice Freeman was the first woman in Oregon to be sentenced to death. However, Gertrude was released after serving only seven years, and Janice's sentence was commuted to life when Oregon passed an initiative to eliminate the death penalty. She served 20 years and was released on parole. What the actual fuck? Yeah, I know. It boggles my mind. It's definitely not justice for Larry and Martha. No, it's not. Well, after Gertrude was freed, she had many psychotic breaks and ended up in a state hospital where she died. And Janice violated parole and ended up back in prison where she died in 2003. Well, I hope Larry and Martha visited those women frequently and haunted the shit out of them. Yeah, me too. Well, I want to say that um, I got a lot of this information from This Is Monsters on YouTube. And he goes into a lot more detail. And he even has photos of the bridge and the fucking bitches, if any of you are interested. Yeah, that was a very sad, horrible story. Yeah, so let's get on to something a little more lighthearted. Are you ready for our funeral home story? You know I am. Talk about a couple more little bitches. <laughs> Don't talk about mom like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The undertaker's wife felt conflicted. On the one hand, she desperately wanted to go into the city. She didn't get away from her small town often and a trip to the mall could be just the balm she needed to soothe her growing restlessness. Very seldom did she or her husband, the undertaker, get away. 
since they were always on call, trips out of town, especially together, were rare. On the other hand, she knew a trip to the city came with the obligation of combining other funeral home duties, which could include picking up a casket from a warehouse or delivering paperwork, but more often than not meant hauling a dead body. Any departures from home must be planned for efficiency to obtain optimum benefits. The undertaker's wife envied her friends who could take off at the drop of a hat and go whenever they chose. They were good enough to invite her on their girls' shopping excursions, even though they all knew she couldn't go. Oh, someday I'll be able to join in, she told herself. Someday when we have someone to cover for us, or if we can ever afford to hire another undertaker, or when the kids are older and don't need adult supervision. Someday. She stood at her kitchen window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You're so good. <laughs> an actress <laughs> all right get it together all right she stood at her kitchen window watching her daughter's play. <laughs> okay sorry sorry go ahead okay she stood at her kitchen window watching her daughter's play in the last days of summer school school would be starting soon and they needed new clothes and supplies she really should take them to the mall the thought made her shudder Suddenly, the undertaker's wife felt a chin on her shoulder and arms wrapping around her waist. So, said the undertaker, are you going into the city or do you want to stay here and run the funeral? The undertaker's wife thought she really wanted to go to the mall like a normal person, by herself, without children and without hauling a dead body to the crematory first. But that was not going to happen and she definitely did not want to stay and conduct a funeral alone. I'll head in, she answered, leaning her head against her husband's. They need school clothes. The undertaker chuckled. I knew it. He slapped her on the butt. I'll get Mr. Jones loaded in the van so you can be on your way. The undertaker's wife continued to stare out the window. She wished there was a crematory closer so she didn't have to travel 60 miles every time a family chose to have their loved one cremated. Luckily, most people chose burial, but cremation was becoming more popular. If the trend continued, Acme Funeral Home might have to consider installing their own retort. But that was very expensive and not warranted yet. Someday, she said to herself. For now, the task at hand was to round up her daughters and try to convince them a trip to the mall would be fun. But the girls knew a trip to the mall was not simply a trip to the mall. Business always mixed with pleasure, and the undertaker's wife knew they would object to sharing a vehicle with a non-breathing passenger, even if they got new clothes out of the deal. Her daughters would give her misery, and the drive would just be the start. Once they got to the shopping center, the youngest would want to hit every store and pick out clothes that were way too expensive, while the oldest would sulk and refuse to try on anything. At least the undertaker's wife didn't have to worry about her colorblind, unfashionable son. He was at a friend's house for the day and didn't care if she chose his school clothes. Jeans and t-shirts were good enough for him. She headed for the door to tell her girls to get ready to go. The undertaker's wife didn't mind driving with dead people. Since her parents were also undertakers, she'd been around dead people her entire life. It was the logistics of transporting bodies to Summer Lane Crematory that bugged her. Everything would be fine if only she or the undertaker drove bodies. The problem arose if more than one living person came along for the ride. If that happened, 
the bench seats in the 78 Dodge had to be removed and one of them placed sideways, lengthwise against the van wall, so the cot which carried the body would have room in the back. The undertaker's wife thought of it as a morbid city bus with rowdy children along one row and a passed out vagrant taking up all the seats on the other row. On this bus, there was no room for a center aisle. The passengers sitting on the misplaced bench seat often had their shins butting up against the dead person on the cot. Of course, no one liked that. Aside from the nuisance of touching a dead body, the van seat tipped every time you turned a corner since it wasn't anchored into the brackets on the floor. The highway to Summer Lane Crematory was windy and long, lots of corners, lots of tipping, lots of protests from the unfortunate passengers in the back. The undertaker's wife had to tell her daughters three times to go to the bathroom and get in the van. She waited, watching the undertaker wrestle the bench seat as close to the wall as he could. You know what a great invention would be? He asked breathlessly. What? Seats that could be stowed right in the floor. Just pull a lever and push them in. Well, that would be great. Doesn't sound likely, but maybe someday. The undertaker went to retrieve Mr. Jones from the prep room, then slid the cot into the narrow space beside the bench seat. Who's the lucky one who gets to sit here? The undertaker asked, patting the errant bench. The undertaker's wife crossed her arms over her chest. They're both sitting back there. That way there's no fighting over who sits in front. Good call, said the undertaker. Then he shouted, girls, hurry up. Mr. Jones isn't getting any fresher. After the initial complaints about having to sit next to a dead guy, the undertaker's wife and her daughters got on their way. The girls screamed every time the van wound around a corner and the seat tipped. We're going to fall on him, the youngest cried. Mom, slow down, yelled the oldest. The undertaker's wife pressed the brakes, but knew there were more curves up ahead that would topple them over no matter how slow she went. She would try to remind them to hold on to the handles overhead as soon as they got closer. If they did that, at least they could keep the seat from rocking forward. Once she'd successfully tuned out the chatter coming from the back, the undertaker's wife daydreamed. What will it be like once the kids get older and I can go into the city alone? Even if I have to transport a dead person, it would still be nice to have some time to myself. Wouldn't it be great if another funeral home in the area installed a crematory? Traveling 20 miles would be better than 60. What if there was a van that had seats you didn't have to completely remove from the car? Could they devise such a mechanism where seats could fold right into the floor? Is such a thing even possible? And if they could make a van like that, could Acme Funeral Home afford it? Oh, someday, someday. The undertaker's wife glanced in her rear view mirror, checking to see if she was holding up traffic because of her slow pace. She spied her youngest daughter, who had her feet resting on the maroon-covered mound on the cot. Heidi, snapped the undertaker's wife. Get your feet off Mr. Jones. Why? He can't feel anything and I can't get comfortable. It's disrespectful. You know better than that. The girl slid her feet from Mr. Jones's midsection and wedged them between the steel framed cot and the sideways seat. Satisfied, the undertaker's wife returned her attention to the road ahead and was quickly lost in thought. Does my youngest child know better? Do any of my children know better? Have I taught them manners and respect? I think I have. I know I try. I try every day to raise my kids to be good people. Her mantra was always, 
be kind. She said it to her children so often, they projected it and said it for her. But sometimes she wondered if her efforts had any effect. The more she thought about it, the more tense she became. Gripping the steering wheel, the undertaker's wife recalled all her shortcomings in the parenting department. There was the time she took her children along while she ran errands. They pestered her to stop at the store for candy, then threw fits when she said no. Instead of accepting her answer, they plotted against her. When she returned to the car after dropping a dust certificate off at the doctor's office, the little imps had swiveled the hoses on the windshield wipers to face outward, drenching her with washer fluid as she passed in front of the car. They also liked to honk the horn while she walked in front of the hood, which always startled her even when she knew it was coming. When she took them to church, she made them sit in the front pew so she could keep an eye on them from the choir loft, but that only drew concerns from the other parishioners. It seemed she always had a stern or worried look on her face, they would say, and they worried if she was all right. The kids fought her tooth and nail about going to church. They wanted to sleep in or it was boring, but she had taken a stance and going to church was non-negotiable. You don't make dad go. He's busy, she would answer. Usually the undertaker was not busy on Sunday mornings, but the undertaker's wife knew that was a battle she would not win. Her husband was a faithful member of the Holy PGA and Sundays were reserved for whatever golf tournament happened to be televised that weekend. Week after week, she dragged her kids to church and finally she gave up. One Sunday, when they smuggled in their hamster and let it scurry up and down the front pew, she realized they were capable of anything. The undertaker's wife did not want to face the inevitable humiliation they would bring upon her. Where have I gone wrong? How can children, loved as much as they are, be so bad? She pressed the accelerator and narrowed her eyes. They're spoiled. That's all there is to it. I've never seen other kids squirt their mothers with windshield washer fluid or sneak a rodent into church. Somehow, the undertaker's wife needed to regain control. She clenched her jaw, rehearsing in her mind how she was going to respond to the next kid who complained about getting car sick or moaned about where they were going to have lunch. This is a privilege, she said to herself. My kids are so damn spoiled, they don't realize it. A lot of kids have to wear hand-me-downs and don't even get to go to the mall. We work hard to give our children a little more than what we had. For what? To be griped at? To be disrespected? Well, that nonsense ends today, thought the undertaker's wife. Lost in the imaginary conversation of putting her kids back in their place, the undertaker's wife didn't realize she had forgotten to remind her daughters to hold on to the overhead straps, nor did she realize she had sped up to 60 miles per hour and a curve lay only meters ahead. Rather than stomping on the brakes, the undertaker's wife took the corner at nearly full speed, sending the van seat and her unsuspecting daughters flying. She listened with satisfaction as she heard the girls lurch forward, sprawling onto Mr. Jones with a muffled thud. Mom! shrieked the oldest. Slow down! You threw us on a dead guy! screamed the youngest. The undertaker's wife nosed out of the curve and into a straightaway. She glanced in her rear view. That's for bringing your hamster to church. The girls scrambled off Mr. Jones's body, trying to set the van seat upright. They had just gotten it situated when another corner toppled the seat again, pinning them onto the dead man. 
Mom, stop! That's for squirting me with washer fluid. The girls screamed, struggling to right the seat, the bench seat. They pushed and pushed, but between the motion of the van and the awkwardness of their positions, they remained pinned between 75 pounds of bench and 185 pounds of dead flesh. Please help Help us! The undertaker's wife found a wide spot in the highway and rolled to a stop. She turned in her seat and faced her daughters. There are more curves ahead. Do you want me to just get all of this out of the way for all the shitty things you're going to do to me in the future? Or are we good? The girls appeared stunned and nodded furiously. We're good. We're sorry, Mom. The undertaker's wife lifted her chin as if cementing the deal and opened her door. She climbed into the back of the van and helped her daughters situate the van seat. Once they were settled, she pointed at them. We're going to take Mr. Jones to Summer Lane Crematory. Then we're going to the mall to buy school clothes. She aimed a finger at her oldest daughter. You will try things on or you won't get anything. She pointed at her youngest. You will not argue with me when I say something is too expensive. I have a budget and I am sticking to it. The girls, wide-eyed, nodded again. The undertaker's wife hopped out of the van and slammed the door. Once back behind the wheel, she said, And I'm choosing where we have lunch. There will be no arguments. Okay, Okay, Mom. Mom. Now, there are more curves coming up. I'll go slow, but you need to hang on to those straps overhead if you don't want to end up on Mr. Jones again. The girls immediately reached up and clutched the handles in the van ceiling. Now that the pecking order had been restored, the undertaker's wife clicked on her blinker and slowly pulled back onto the highway. She glanced once more in her rearview mirror to see her daughters somber and holding onto the rescue straps so tightly their knuckles turned white. The undertaker's wife couldn't help but smile. Someday they will be mothers. Someday they will get paid back in full. Ah, someday. We were, we really were little shits. We were pretty bad. Yeah. Poor mom. I know, poor mom, but we're really, really, really like best friends now, all of us. Yes, we are all extremely close. Yeah. Extremely close. In fact, we, um, besides being together all the time, Mm -hmm. we take an annual vacation to to Cabo and thanks to mom. Yes, thanks to mom. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's just so much fun. Okay, this is, so when I say our mom's not a regular mom, she's a cool mom. (laughs) One time when Heidi and I and mom were, we go to Cabo and we always go and it's somebody's spring break. So there's tons of college kids. And so one time Heidi and I go to the bathroom because you know, you never can go to the bathroom alone. That's right. So we get out of the bathroom and we're going, where's mom? Well, where was mom? Yeah. We're looking all over and we can't find mom. She wasn't where we left her. And we hear this ruckus and we look over and mom is dancing on the bar and has all these college boys around her. They just loved her. Yeah. yeah, Boys and girls. Boys and girls. Girls loved her her just as much. Yep. Yep. So super fun. We love mom and we're sorry for everything from our childhood. Yes. Whatever we did. We're sorry. (laughs) Or last week. Or or last week. (laughs) It's just a standing apology. We're sorry. Okay. And we all, we love you, love you, love you. So anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. (laughs) Remember, be kind. Any day above round is a good one. And finally, keep keep on breathing. breathing.